Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we are welcoming Trish Gunning, uh, former prosecutor and was the first special prosecutor inspector general of the New York State Justice Center for the Protection of People with Special Needs. Welcome, Trish. Hi. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, we're looking forward to having a, a good discussion about several different things with you today. Also joining me is Scott Modell, our Commander-in-Chief here at Modell <laughs> Consulting Group. Hey, Dermot. Trish, so great to see you. So great to have you on the podcast. Great. So Trish, why don't we start with you uh, providing our uh, audience with some more background on yourself, like where you started as a prosecutor, the work you did there, and what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I, I started my career as a prosecutor in the Brooklyn DA's office, where I uh, landed in the, after being a, a line prosecutor, landed in the Crimes Against Children Bureau, which is where I began or started uh, to learn about forensic interviewing of children. I prosecuted sexual and physical abuse of children and investigated uh, uh, child death, unfortunately. Um, after that, I went to the Rockland County District Attorney's Office as the Chief of Special Victims. And here uh, in Rockland County, which is where I live, uh, we had a multidisciplinary team, a special victim center, and we um, really enhanced prosecutions here in Rockland County involving special victims. They didn't have a special victims unit or a specialization um, when I arrived here. After that, I went to the New York State Justice Center for the Protection of People with Special Needs, which uh, I went there at its inception along with you, Dermot, um, and we were the first uh, uh, agency of its kind, literally in the country, we had uh, the ability to prosecute cases, not just investigate cases, and, uh, you know, uh, for internally as administrative investigations, but to also take the ball and run with cases that rose to the criminal level and prosecute them in counties across the state, which was really um, an amazing uh, opportunity because I, I learned, we learned firsthand uh, a lot about um, investigating cases involving people with uh, disabilities and, and different uh, special needs as they are defined in New York State. Um, and we did, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. After that, I left the Justice Center and I now am a criminal defense attorney. So I see, uh, I went from the prosecution side into criminal defense and it's a whole, it's really uh, been uh, illuminating. I've learned a lot about the other side of how things work um, and uh, what it means to hold a prosecutor to their burden of proof and, and to advocate for clients um, who are charged with crimes. I'm also a local judge and I represent providers. Um, I have uh, provider clients as an attorney that uh, provide services to developmentally disabled individuals and uh, another client who provides services to people with uh, mental health diagnoses. So that's what I'm doing. I do. So I, I guess I, I have a pretty well-rounded view of this, of this, um, this fear lately, <laughs> or I've gotten one anyway. Yeah, definitely. And I, we met when we did uh, some of the first forensic interviewing training uh, for your investigators. That's how I met Dermot and met you. And uh, 
it's been great to stay in touch all these years and so happy, as I said at the beginning, to have you here. And I think one of the things that we're going to do is we're all going to riff a little bit and talk about a couple things. We were uh, talking earlier before we started about the provider experience, about the worker experience, and really at the heart of all this, the experience of the individuals who live in the homes, right? The person-centered living. And uh, Dermot, I think it would be great. We'll start out talking about the case we were talking about as a kickoff, and we'll go from there. So uh, we'll, we'll give the floor to you, and then we'll have Trish weigh in, and you know I can't help myself out weigh in as well, but, uh, and then we'll just see where it goes. That's what makes it fun, Scott. So yeah, we were talking case, and this was a case uh, when I was at the Justice Center that I really got to work hand in hand with Trish on as the prosecutor. She took the lead prosecution on this particular case. And it was a, a matter of ongoing sexual abuse, statutorily prohibited sexual abuse between a staff and a adult female uh, service recipient, a resident of a group home. And you know, it started out that there was an issue that occurred at this group home over the weekend. And it culminated on a late Sunday night, early Monday morning, where the police were called. And our victim, our female victim in this case, was really upset because she had a lockbox in her file cabinet in her bedroom that contained $900. And when she came back that Sunday late evening to the home, that lockbox was gone. So she understandably got very upset because what we learned was she worked very hard to earn that money, you know, returning, collecting bottles and cans, returning them to the store. She did groundwork out in the neighborhoods, raking leaves, raking up lawns, taking care of things for people in her community. So, you know, a lot of time spent to earn all of that money. And now suddenly it was gone. So when law enforcement was called to the house because she was having, you know, what was viewed as a uh, maladaptive behavioral incident, uh, local law enforcement was really not prepared to deal with her, nor did they know really how to interview her or they didn't even bother interviewing her and they didn't really know how to handle the situation. So they did what I think what they knew best and that comes from law enforcement training is they handled her as an emotionally disturbed person and they had her removed from the premises under the mental health law and taken to a local hospital where she was admitted to the psychiatric unit. So that was, you know, early Monday morning, I think it was the following like Tuesday or Wednesday, there was uh, a group home meeting to find out what's what's the treatment going on, how are we going to have her come back to the house, you know, what are the next steps for this young lady. And when she showed up to the meeting, she had like a five or six page long handwritten note detailing that she had been engaged in an ongoing sexual relationship with this particular staff and she believes that he stole her money because she had told him about the money that she had had in the location that she had it in her room. So right away, you know, we, we ran into some issues. Um, I think for provider agencies, you have agencies that are oriented to providing services and a nice living space for people with disabilities. So the, the management staff and some of the higher ups in this agency couldn't believe that this type of thing had happened. And the added layer of confusion involved the alleged offender, because he had this very uh, pure reputation. He was married, had a child, a child on the way. He was gonna be a minister in a local church. Uh, he was you know, a handsome, well put together person, articulate, um, seemed to have this 
pure, pristine background, soft-spoken, had a great demeanor about him. And he just didn't fit the profile of somebody who would be committing these types of acts. Yeah, the exact um, opposite of, you know, the, the characteristics or the exact opposite of the piece of shit that he was. Exactly. Right. So again, perceptions and how perceptions create biases. Right. So we forget about the grooming abilities. We're all susceptible to those biases. So this is why we talk about it. Absolutely. So this he was very adept at grooming people. He not only groomed the victim, but he groomed his coworkers and he groomed his, you know, his supervisors and all the people around him. So, you know, the investigation started with gathering like documents and information about, you know, our victim and the people in the house. And then it really kicked off with conducting a forensic interview of the victim. And this was one of my colleagues' cases. She was assigned to the case. And in her first initial interview with the victim, you know, then reached out to me. He's like, there's something here. Like, I need you to come with me. We need to like do like a more extensive forensic interview and, and really find out what's going on. So we did. We went back. Uh, we interviewed her. Uh, we had a couple multi-session interviews with her. They were long. They were like three hours long. Uh, very extensive interviews where she gave us so much information, so many details, like was able to really narrow down when certain events happened. Like, you know, for instance, there was one particular sex act that followed the repair to a hole in her closet wall. So she had come in weeks before this, was mad or something, threw something in her closet and it created a hole in the sheetrock. And she was like, yeah, that it was like that Friday. And I'm, I'm working off a memory that's a, a little old, so bear with me if I'm a little off. But it was like that Friday or Saturday, we had, we had sex. And it was right after the hole in the wall got repaired. Now, I'm like, fantastic. Go to the provider, like, you know, after the interview, was there a hole in the wall? Yes. Was that ever repaired? Yes. Do you have the repair receipts and the records for the repair? Yes. Narrowed down the exact time. Then I pull his timesheets. I'm like, oh, guess what? He's working that day, you know, right that she said. And that happened for a couple of these incidents where she was able to really anchor the time frame. He had gone on vacation, happened like the Friday or Saturday, came back from vacation where he went to XYZ. So she gave us, now here's this woman with, you know, some mental health diagnosis and, and intellectual disability diagnosis. And she was able to provide these robust details about the specific incidents watching, you know, animal porn on a staff computer, watching regular porn on a computer, what went on in the computer, was able to describe his penis to us, um, all this really great stuff. So then when it comes down to it, we, we're gathering all this corroborative evidence, and then we face him. And we're in, we're in the interview process. He ends up lying to us for, you know, 25, 30 minutes on a recorded interview. And then when he's faced with the, the question, well, are, are you circumcised? Because he's denying that, you know, he ever shared personal information. And then when he's, we're revealing the personal information we know, he's like, oh, she must have, you know, he had excuses for that, but couldn't get around how she knew he was uncircumcised. And that's when he kind of like broke and said, yeah, um, you know, it started with me. I, I thought I, I wanted to have oral sex, let her have oral sex with me. So I unzipped my pants and pulled out my penis. And then it evolved to, well, she performed oral sex on me on two occasions. So not just one, but two occasions is what he offered up. So again, we were able to build that case and, and make the arrest and take him to trial where Trish was the prosecutor on that. And, you know, we had to navigate a lot of things like how could our victim handle this? Is she going to do okay in the stand? What's the anxiety, the pressure? What's cross-examination going to be? What's our evidence? What are our, our 
you know, potential areas of vulnerability for a defense attorney to attack and discredit her. Um, all those kind of considerations came in and the case was strong. It was rock solid, especially with, with his admission of the oral sex, because again, violated statutory law. And then moving through the trial and seeing how the trial progressed was very interesting. The trial strategy, who we brought in for the, you know, to help testify and bolster the case and help the jury understand. And then even, you know, he was found guilty of, of the oral sex, but, you know, the jury at the end still had trouble believing her credibility. So still you have, you have a suspect who admits to a course of conduct, but doesn't admit to having, you know, sexual intercourse and anal sex, like was alleged. And the jury still couldn't believe our victim. They heard him lying to me. Some other funny things came up in the trial where he got exposed for lying again in while the trial was going on. And the jury still had a hard time saying, wow, you know, here's this woman who came up, testified, was consistent with the story that she, you know, she told the investigators, which was recorded. And here she is on the stand telling that story again, very consistently. Um, I, one thing always stood out about her testimony the defense attorney used the term, so your story is, and she goes, this isn't a story, this really happened to me, and she was, she was adamant, she was angry, like, don't make this up, this isn't a work of fiction, um, so it's just a really interesting case, and it opened up, it really opened up my eyes as an investigator as to all the things that happen or can happen in a provider agency, and the things that, you know, investigators, law enforcement might be up against, what provider agencies might be up against, and what the people who receive services are up against too in that environment. Because here is a guy who's very adept at grooming people all around him. And ultimately, at, at first, our victim was re-victimized because all the, the provider staff around her were like, that didn't happen. Why are you lying? Why are you making this up? Why are you ruining this guy's life? And when we came out of that interview with the suspect and informed them, hey, you need to now put in a safety plan. He just admitted to things. They were like, their jaws hit the floor. They were like, what? And you know, as this whole case then moved through at the end, great women, very well, great, great natured, great hearted, well-intended women were like, you, this case has forever changed our perspective on things and how we approach things and you know, how we're gonna be running and managing our provider agency. So at least that was good, I guess, for them to implement changes. But this is the reality that that's out there and, and why it's so important to do what we do from like really the ground up, from that initial law enforcement response to actually talking to the victim. The, the officer never talked to the victim. So Dermot, never that was one out. of the things I was gonna I was gonna stop you on and, and just say from from the get-go in terms of of what are the takeaways for law enforcement or for folks who might be listening is is that inherent initial bias that is present often in our in these types of cases where the approach to the case is well that either this person cannot credibly report or even just the optics of this person you know this is a person who uh, was known to dumpster dive looking for bottles who whose appearance uh, you know uh, might have been discounted or someone would have said, well, why, 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 why her? I mean, why would he choose her? Uh, she's often in, going into dumpsters and stuff like that. And here he is a clean cut young guy with a wife and a baby on the way. So, so that initial bias and that judgment that our, that our victim faced um, at the get-go was really um, important. And I think we were in a very uh, uh, fortunate position to have the muscle of the Justice Center behind us at that time, because often local law enforcement doesn't have the bandwidth, not just to 
get beyond the bias, but to understand how to do a, a true forensic interview with an individual who, uh, who, who has special needs or a disability. That's number one. So that those interviews, A, they didn't happen on the, on the front line, um, but, but we had uh, the, the good fortune in New York to have the Justice Center uh, be able to conduct a very detailed, in-depth investigation. And not just to, to do those forensic interviews, but like you said, to match up the paperwork, to look at the, the provider, uh, you know, her behavior plans, look at all of the, the different things that uh, she had said. As you, as you know, in a provider agency, most individuals' daily lives are documented. Every aspect of their daily lives is documented. So it allowed you as a seasoned investigator in these types of cases to look at what her test, how, how her testimony was corroborated by the documentation in, in, in the provide, you know, that the provider maintains or is, has to maintain as part of her care. Um, so I think that was really one thing that stuck out that you, that uh, just that inherent bias and, and the fact that law enforcement often doesn't have the ability to do the type of investigation that you uh, were able to do. And I, I think that's one of the things we'd love to see more of. I think all of us just in general, uh, because we know that people with developmental disabilities and or mental health issues are, are more often victimized than the, than the, the rates are much higher. Um, and, so, and we know that the rates of uh, investigation of these types of cases is much lower. So, uh, because they often don't even get investigated and but for your work um, and the Justice Center, uh, this case wouldn't have been investigated. It just wouldn't have been, right? So, except when she made that, uh, when she made the disclosure at the hospital um, or later on when she, she was hospitalized, um, you know, even then might not have risen to a police investigation because she was in a mental health facility and because she was being hospitalized uh, for emotional disturbance. So, you know, we were, we, I, I think that, that having special training, you know, what I see, as uh, in New York that was, we were fortunate again to have was that kind of specialized training, which I think is starting to happen in other parts of the country and you guys are doing it. And I, I think it's really, really important. But I think we need it really on the, on the front lines, particularly with police agencies. I know you're, you're doing a lot of training, but. Yeah, and, and you know, if, if a law enforcement or the, the first responders don't have the, the training, and, and it's not reasonable for everybody to have that level of training, at least have the awareness to say, hey, we need to get somebody who really can do this properly. Two, two things I want to follow up on, and it was great, great discussion. Both of you said something that uh, I'd like you to comment more on. The And I've heard this before too, this idea of why would this guy who's you know clean cut, good looking guy, choose this dumpster diver. Why would anybody choose that child or that person with cerebral palsy? Um, what are they, you know, how could they be attracted to that? And I, you know, that's, that's a common thing. And of course, you both of you could speak at length, but uh, Dermot, if you want to take the first stab, and then we'll go to Trish. And, and uh, so, and your own realizations through this work about yeah, that's not really it. 
Right. Yeah, exactly, Scott. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, right? So one of the things that I learned, is I really got reinforced when I started at the Justice Center was to recognize any biases I'm bringing to the table when I start an investigation and to check them and just come up with just multiple theories and go back to some of the education that I had received in law enforcement years, you know, as, city, as a city cop. It's not, so I'm not a predator, right? So I don't think like a predator. I don't, I don't have the same motivations to like of power and control and, and, and exert myself over somebody. That's not how I operate. So I have to come out of myself and not apply my standards to understand a, a, an offender. I, I just, yeah, I, I, most people aren't predators. Most people don't want, you know, to, so it's normal to people to have that initial reaction because, and thank God, most people aren't predators. Most people aren't physically, sexually abusing other people, thank God. Right, exactly. And but again, like we, we take certain things for granted in our mindset. So, you know, I had to take a step back and I had to remember, like, well, what is like sexual dominance about? Like, why would this person be doing it? You know, maybe they have some uh, fetishes, in, internal deviance. It could be, you know, they want to exert power and control over people. They just whatever's going on in their life. Like, I, I'm not in this person's shoes. So I I consign myself to, hey, it's not your job to rationalize the irrational mind as I, per as I perceive it. It's more my job to uncover what's going on and then seeing, seeing what's happening, coming in as open-minded as I possibly can and recognizing that, wow, like did this guy, like I saw grooming action, like in action, like how this guy, and he, even in the interview, like how he was trying to groom me and my partner while we're doing this interview to portray Crazy. himself as a certain yeah. way. It was amazing. You know, and, and but having all the background information, I'm like, oh, I readily recognize what he was doing. So I fully understood, you know, how he was able to groom not only the victim, but his coworkers and his supervisors and how he projected this like great persona. And that stayed with me. There are certain cases along and in, in incidents that you have during your careers that stay with you and, and a great learning moments. And fortunately, I learned a lot without screwing anything up like it, it worked you know, well right as as you know. right yeah as far as right. i know well it went and he got convicted so no, trish I'm, wasn't I'm, yelling at me that i screwed something up <laughs> I'm, I'm joking i'm joking right. yeah trish would have let you know of course you know uh it's interesting something you said made me think of something and i wanted to share because i think it's important for people to hear this you know i love that you said it's not your job to rationalize the irrational mind or somebody else's mind i part and parcel to that I don't ever use the term pedophile because I don't give a shit what your clinical diagnosis is, what paraphilia you have. Either you molested a child or you didn't. This right. whole movement for minor attracted persons, and I, we try not to get political on here, but this whole movement for that because of the stigmatization of the term pedophile, I, the only thing we agree on is I don't like the term. We should call them child rapists or sexual abusers. So we should more accurately call people by what they do as opposed to what a diagnosis is. Doesn't matter what your diagnosis is, it's what you do. Right, I, I think one of the things when you asked sort of that came to mind for me is, and this is something that we used often and many prosecutors do in, uh, is the idea and can talk when you're talking to a jury about not just the power and control piece, but, which is very important, but also having access and opportunity. So this guy um, had access and he had opportunity and he took it. Um, and so that's part of the hurdle in these cases too, is convincing a jury, right? That, um, that that's sometimes just all it takes, access and opportunity for someone to, 
to commit a crime. Um, and I, I think one of the things I thought about when, when you were talking, Dermot, in terms of how the case, A, we had a very good case, we had a case to work with, but it was not an easy prosecution. Dermot handed us a very good case with, with a statement, but juries are sometimes reluctant to convict people in cases like this, in, in sex cases, and um, and and particularly if if they're looking at the optics are, you know, well, he looks like a nice young man or something like that, which he did. Um, but part of what we had to do was educate the jury. And I think that, it, you know, as much as I talked about training law enforcement and careful interviewing and how, you know, from the beginning of the case, we have to have um, folks educated, right? But in the courtroom, you have to educate your jury about what it is they're going to see That's and right. what how her mental health diagnosis uh, manifests. And in her case, there were some pretty... Um, uh, you know, challenging aspects to her diagnosis in terms of um, that that were in her records, and the, and the jury was gonna gonna see it. And I don't know, I, I it's hard time to even it's hard to even say it out loud. But I did certainly had to had to do it in front of a jury, which is to say that she had some uh, sexual attraction to animals, and she had verbalized that, and 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 it was in a record and we had to deal with it. And that was something we attacked right away. We started educating the jury about that the minute they walked in. We talked about it, we made put it out there um, so that they understood this is part of, of her diagnosis and it doesn't change what happened to her. Um, and they were able to overcome that. And it was a tough, that was a tough aspect in the case to overcome. And I, it starts in voir dire for a prosecutor, educating a jury about what you're dealing with and all these various, um, the power and control dynamics, but what her diagnosis looked like, what it might have caused her to do in the past and what those documents are gonna say about that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The last trial I testified in, I think it was last month or two months ago, um, I was there to educate the jury about, about this victim. And uh, it was a stepfather uh, raping his uh, adult stepdaughter with intellectual disabilities. Mom didn't believe her, um, but educating the jury, you got 24 years. Uh, and and the behavior of the victims as that comes in, like you said, that sexual attraction to animals. I'll, I'll, I'm going to bring up another case which we haven't done a podcast on. We could the the Stubblefield case. I'll, I'll talk about um, that victim in a second. But I imagine you also had to get the, through what was tough for the jury was, and maybe not. But it seems like because he admitted to the oral sex. I, I assume the jury must have rationalized, well, why wouldn't he have admitted to the other stuff, even though mm -hmm. you caught him, you know, had him lying and everything else. I mean, you have to overcome that as well, right? Yeah, right. You have to explain that. And, and, and we, I, you know, we were able to do it. I mean, we had major challenges in the case. Um, and, and I think one of the things for prosecutors to the extent that any of them are listening is, is to not be afraid of it. You know, just these, these are the, these are the issues in your case. You have to tackle them head on. Our um, victim had a pension for lifting up her shirt and playing with her belly button, right? So this was, this was a real challenge, right? Um, and, and it happened and um, she, you know, struggled. We didn't, you know, up until it was time for her to testify, we didn't know if she was even going to be able to get through it. And, and it was incredibly stressful for her, but we had to, you know, say, look, she, when she's on the stand, you know, this might happen in jury selection. You might see that. Okay. So, yeah. you know, get ready. Um, 
and so by the time she did testify, when those things did happen, um, you know, they, they, they had fair warning and they knew and they accepted her um, and they accepted her testimony and credited her testimony. Why they didn't credit, I think my theory on why they didn't uh, convict on the other counts is more like, they, you know, they didn't want to go so hard on the guy. <laughs> that was my, my thought. I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah. She was credible in her testimony. Sure. In my opinion. Sure. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, Trish. Sorry. No, that's it. I'm good. Yeah. You, you, I remember a case a while back in California. I had, uh, this is not the Stubblefield case. We'll probably do that on another uh, podcast, but I want to talk about two cases uh, that align with that. Yeah. One of the victims, she would lift up her shirt, show you her breasts and say, you know, I want to have your baby. She would do that a lot. She'd false report that somebody hit her because she didn't get extra snacks. She had this history of false reporting. And yet this happened. I mean, the group home manager did have sex with her and, it, and the detective who interviewed him got him to admit it. Absent that, if he stuck with his story and said, no, I doubt that goes anywhere. Right. Right. Because who's, you know, generally, right. And I think investigators often will look at it and say, well, who's going to believe this person? Like, so sometimes, right. If you're, you have for these, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, um, Dermot, but you know, a, a victim or uh, could have a false allegation protocol in place. And you got to turn that over as a prosecutor. You yep. have to look at that as an investigator and you have to see how that factors into your case. And is this a false allegation? What do we do with that protocol? This is right. We have a problem here. Um, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen because who better to abuse than someone who's, you know, that, you know, no one's going to believe or you think no one's going to believe, you know? Yeah. And, 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 oh, go ahead, Dermot. Go ahead. Yep. One of the things with the false allegation protocol that I found was quite often, like the example you used, right? Oh, he hit me because I didn't get snacks. It's It tends to be pretty specific. So suddenly when you get an allegation of, oh, he's, you know, he came in my room and touched me or we've been having sex. Well, that's outside the false allegation protocol. Yep. So, you know, right. let's look at the false allegation protocol. What is it, what does it typically encompass? And is the new allegation within that, or is it something different? And if it's something different, well, how many times did they make that particular allegation? Was there anything that, you know, preceded this, like education or anything like, so eliminating those factors, like, well, what could have precipitated this other than that it happened? And, and you go through that process of, of elimination, say, well, there's nothing, you know, it's not like they just went to a sexual education court class, which again, could have been like, oh my God, the first time they ever received it. Now they realize what he's been doing to me is actually abuse. So they're reporting it. So again, not, not necessarily exclusive, but you know, sometimes you have to look at the false allegation and don't be worried about it because the new allegation doesn't fit within the parameters of what historically is out there. And prosecutors have to look at that as, you know, right. So when you're assessing a case as a prosecutor, you're looking at well, what's the defense going to do with that? So I, I'm now, so I've now worn both hats and I, I now wear the defense hat and you say, oh, a false allegation protocol, I've got something to work with. Um, because, and, you know, a jury is not necessarily going to understand, right, that the hitting was for not getting, you know, that they made the allegations because they didn't get a snack, right? You're going to admit as a defense attorney, you're going to take that, you're going to be waving that protocol and walking around the courtroom with it in your hand, right? You're going to be using that uh, to your advantage, along with with all the other records that you may that you will have been entitled to, one of the things I think that's also interesting or difficult or challenging for prosecutors is is that if a person without intellect, so a, a a person who's been victimized or is a victim of a crime who does not have a developmental disability, you don't get 
their uh, daily activity logs. You don't know, I don't get to know what you did uh, you know, six months ago on a Wednesday afternoon and whether or not you were sitting in your iPad, what you know, using your iPad in the residence. The access that defense that the defense and or that the defense generally has to the records of a developmentally disabled victim or 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 a person with disabilities uh, who's been victimized, the the sheer volume of of records that they are entitled to um, is is unbelievable, really, and and it gives the defense a lot to work with, um, and and that's not. The case, if like again, if you, if you were the victim of a crime, nobody would get to know what you did six months ago, um, or a year ago, even. So you, you would with me. Everything's in my calendar. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. I, I you pick a date. I can tell you what I was doing in 2016 on August 5th. I could tell you exactly where I was. So, um, but no, I, I get your point. But my the follow up question I had was, what happened to the nine hundred dollars? Oh, I think he took it. We don't know. It was it was stolen. <laughs> it was gone. We couldn't. You it was know, gone. We couldn't know that. He wasn't charged with that. So, um, you know, uh, but she was. You, you know, even many it was probably a year later that the trial occurred. She was still completely uh, perseverating around uh, on that. Yeah, it's so, a lot of money. You know, yeah, it's a lot of money, and and she that really was uh, huge for her. Really huge for her. Um, you know, I think Dermot touched also on the provider piece, which is, it's, I, you know, I also representing providers, right? Um, they get to know people in their care and, you know, because they're with them all the time, right? And they see them, maybe not the, the administrators in that case knew uh, our victim, but, you know, they weren't with her every day. But, you know, what? That's there's a familiarity that occurs too in these uh, types of situations um, between staff and and the individuals that they're caring for, and there's often a blurring of the lines, and so um, so you can see sometimes staff might might not have believed her, and in this case they did not believe her until after um, until after the defendant confessed. So you know that's something to think about um, too, just that blurring of the lines for staff. You know, another interesting element of this case, and, and we are, we, we've kind of coined a term for it, and we talk about it in our forensic interviewing classes, is I think a, an issue that society at large has, and it's this assumption of care, it's a bias, that, you know, all people, like, I, it, it's a layered assumption of care, that people with disabilities are being well cared for all the time in facilities that have highly trained staff, you know, properly staffed agencies with the proper level of equipment, specific education regarding taking care of people with disabilities, and that they're all well-intentioned people. Now, I'm, I think for the vast majority of folks who are in the care industry, they are well-intentioned people. They really are, right? But you're going to have some outliers. Sure. You're going to have some motivated offenders. You're also going to have good people who are pushed to the limit and beyond because they're not properly staffed. They're not properly equipped and they're not properly trained and they're responsible for a lot of a lot of information. So I think society, law enforcement, you have to battle this assumption of care and and not let that particular bias get in your way for doing an investigation. Because in this particular case, you know, the officer showed up, you know, look, honestly, it, until the unfamiliar becomes familiar, we often act in an awkward manner, right? We're nervous, we're like trepidatious of like getting into it. It's like, I don't wanna screw something up. So I can kind of get it. 
like where the, the, the responding officer initially, like he talked to staff and the staff was like, she doesn't have any money. She's full of crap. She, she lives here. Like she's getting social service and whatever. So somehow that first guy, he was not aware that she's been a problem for the provider because she makes too much money picking up cans and working in the neighborhood. And she would have too much money on hand that could jeopardize her benefit package. And it's not consistent money on hand. So it's like, oh, so other people knew about this, but what was initially reported to law enforcement was like, she didn't have any money. So how do you confirm that? Like, why not talk to that woman and find out, like, tell me more about your money, you know, and just get those basic facts. But those barriers come up, right? Those biases and beliefs like, well, she's here. This is a group home. They're providing the right care for her. This probably couldn't have happened. She's, you know, she's just in crisis and making something up. She's delusional. Whatever went through that person's mind. Because again, law enforcement, I I dealt with a lot of emotionally disturbed persons calls. That was really my interaction when I was a patrolman, you know, in New York City and up in Albany that we went on those cases and there was protocols for handling and didn't involve like interviewing people and finding out what was really going on in their life, you know, um, New York City in particular, I don't know if things change. I've been, I've worked down there in a while, but it was call the supervisor, call emergency services unit uh, and call for EMS. And then, you know, isolate and contain the person and maintain safety. And it wasn't about, hey, what's going on today, Johnny? Like, but, you know, so I, I think police protocols can get in the way, lack of understanding, that assumption of care that everybody's like in, you know, a perfect environment, a care environment tended by great people and exclusively great people is just, it's not true. It's not the way it goes. And you have to be prepared that these things can go wrong. You have to like become aware of the potential culture that exists within a facility and explore that and ask questions and actually interview the person and interview the people around them, you know, and, and take that step. So you don't re-victimize somebody because quite frankly, inadvertently, I think, and unintentionally, she was re-victimized. Imagine you're a victim having your money stolen. Plus you've been the subject of sexual abuse for months and then you you call law enforcement and then they take you away. They take you out of your house and put you in a psych unit. That's a you know, problem. That raised, that raised a, a, a point for me, which is what ultimately when, when I was at the Justice Center, what we started to see in the data, which is what caused ultimately um, me to reach out to you, Scott, um, on the issue of training and develop, um, on doing the forensic interviewing training for law enforcement was because we saw over and over in the beginning, right? You started to see patterns of what was going on in the police response was that they were often turned away by staff at the door. Right. Literally, they, they would just say, no, no, you know, she can't, they can't talk to you. They can't tell you anything. They're not verbal, you know? And so then the assumption was, okay, they're going to handle it internally, right? So, and the, if, if you tell a, 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 even a seasoned detective, this person can't communicate with you or can't, isn't verbal, um, just say nonverbal, right? They're not, they're going to assume they can't do anything. That's right. And the training aspect and, and, and is, is really, really so important. What you're doing, uh, what you're continuing to do with training is, is so important, uh, so important, so and the other thing I'd say, and, and I think you're doing this too, Scott Wirt and, and Dermot, working with uh, and encouraging the use of multidisciplinary teams in these cases, right? So we have, for years, we've always had multidisciplinary teams for ch- for cases involving children, right? And that makes sense because there's shared information, the, the team learns how to do it, and you develop a specialized group within your county or wherever you are. The use of multidisciplinary teams is, I don't think... Uh, uh, 
big enough is not being done enough yeah, it's not um, standard. Yeah, yeah. and it and it should be the standard right because it's not you know i, I never want to equate a developmentally disabled uh, a intellectually uh disabled person to a child i don't like to make that comparison but um the, the use of a multidisciplinary team in these cases, it, it's the, it's as useful as it would be in a, in a child abuse case. Yeah, it, it, you know, and, and right, being sensitive to those comparisons and it, you weren't coming across comparing the two. You know, I would, we could almost argue for any person, whether they have a disability, whether there's somebody who's older, older adult, somebody with, you know, uh, multiple terms for somebody with housing insecurity, somebody who's living on the streets, whatever the term, uh, vulnerable people, having a multidisciplinary approach is better for everyone because we can support people and decrease re-victimization. It's so funny. Some of the things that we have in place for people with disabilities are good for everybody. The analog for me is when uh, they first started doing access. And so there were folks, I think it was mostly out of Berkeley when it started, they called it universal access. They said, hey, when we have doors that open automatically, that's not just good for people in wheelchairs, that's good for people with strollers, anything on wheel, curb cuts, you know, this universal access. And so when I um, had to go and have uh, surgery in actually January, 2020, I had my hip replaced. I was didn't know what was going on. It was actually somewhat scary the thing you know they're putting things in you and then you go to the worm and i remember like it was told that there's going to be like saws and hammers and drills and like don't look around but i was thinking immediately like i wish i had a social story like we do for kids with autism where you kind of walk through what's going to happen who you're going to meet i, I would have been so less stressful had i had that so these strategies and techniques that we use for people with disabilities are good for, for everyone. And that multidisciplinary approach that's been used for decades in child welfare really has improved responses and treatment approaches. TFCBT for, for kids, the more we can do that with adults and the movement has started as, as you alluded to um, in Ohio with the adult advocacy centers and some of the work that's going on there with uh, Catherine Yoder and her team and they're fantastic and we partner with them. And maybe we'll we'll have Catherine on for a podcast episode at some point to talk more about it. But yeah, it's the training, it's the awareness. And also, you know, as, as Dermot said, and I know you know, the vast majority of people, providers and the people in the provider, even the lowest paid, lowest educated, in general are motivated to do a good job and try and support people. We can, there's going to be those people that use it as an opportunity to abuse. Fortunately, that's the smallest percentage. And then there's other this other group that by circumstance that we place people in positions that it may increase the likelihood that they're going to engage in abusive behavior or find themselves in this situation. And that we can do a lot more work on by the way we support providers, by the way we look at oversight. And that in and of itself is, is its own um, podcast. Uh, this is great information. Um, Trish, is there anything else you want to add or share? You really could talk at, at length at any topic. Same with Dermot. It's really, I love the work I, I've been doing over the last 20 years, and I stand in awe at the depth and breadth of experience you both have. So I'm, I'm uh, Dermot has to be here. He kind of works here. But uh, thank you for, for your time, Trish. But I'm going to give the floor back to y'all. Yeah, I, I would just say, Scott, that last point that you made, that that could be the subject of a of, of its own uh, podcast. I, I think, you know, what what's employees being stretched thin, how do we help, how do we support employees uh, who are doing really, truly some of the most difficult work 
there is out there at generally very low rates of pay without getting political. Tough, tough, tough job um, emotionally, yeah. physically, and and it's not a well, but you know, it's not typically a high paying job, and and it's challenging. So how do we support those folks, and how do we look at models for prevention, um, not just by increasing pay rates, but but you know, making working conditions as as positive as they can be. Awesome. Dermot, any last thoughts before we sign off here? Our producer says we can go as long as we want. Maddie runs a tight ship, but she says we can keep going. We could wrap it up. I, you know, I just listened to her. She tells me I can swear. And I know I can. And, you know, so you didn't swear yet, Dermot, but I, I, I'm the, I'm the uh, you know. You're the bad boy. I like it. Yeah. So Trish, I think, you know, for, for folks tuning in and the, the diversity of folks who might be listening to this, from a prosecutor's lens, what would you, and this is gonna be a, a pretty complex question, I apologize, we could break it down, but what would you want investigators to know when building a case, the nature of the case? Like how good are you with just, you know, an evidence-based prosecution? Um, what do you want prosecutors to know? Like strategies, if they're bringing the case, like, so let's say you have local law enforcement, they come in, they, they have a pretty solid case, you know, it's evidence-based because a lot of these cases are. Um, what do you want them to know strategy-wise? What do you want judges? Like now that you're on the bench too, you, you wore the prosecutor hat and you know we ran up a couple uh, against a couple, I'll call them ignorant judges, right? They didn't know, they didn't know, they didn't know about accommodations. There's, there's case law in Massachusetts that have denied people full access to testify because they can only, you know, gesture or say yes or no. So what, what do you want like the cops to know when building a case? What do you want the prosecutors to know to feel better about putting that case forward when a case is investigated? What would you like your fellow judges to know? And then even people who are gonna make up a jury pool. And if that's if that's very complicated, let's you know whack it down a little bit. Sure. Dermot's violating every can. rule of forensic interviewing. He's stacking questions upon stacked questions. Stack. But Terrible. Yeah. Um, up the answer, so. <laughs> and, and what I would say is I think we could do a whole podcast just on what we want people to know. I think, I think we should. I think one thing that it is important to know in New York, at least, that there are resources available. Um, the Justice Center does assist prosecutors in building and investigators uh, when they can, I think, in building cases. Um, I, I think that looking for those resources, looking for people who, who have some experience is really, really important. You know, one of the things I'd say as an investigator is leave your bias at the door. Uh, don't assume anything. Look to build an evidence-based case, support your victim with as much corroboration as you can that's outside of, of their testimonies to support them when they're on the stand. For prosecutors, lay it bare, work with, you know, tell your jury what you got from the get-go, don't hide anything. Um, you know, nothing's worth hiding, right? Uh, turn everything over and, and accept that you, you may, you're gonna have difficulties sometimes with, with your records. For judges, you know, look, I would say there's, I have not seen, and I could be wrong, Scott, I, at least in New York, I've not seen any training on uh, for judges on how to handle these cases from the bench. We had a judge in, in our case that was, you know, a, a little, uh, he was, uh, he handled our, our victim well. She had some issues on the stands, you know, in terms of she kept grabbing the microphone, which started to annoy him. Uh, but I, I think by and large, he was pretty patient. I think, again, I just would really encourage um, generally 
to people to advance the idea that judges and the bench need to be trained in how to manage these cases and whether it's you know uh, just you know making sure that they uh, handle. But there's a lot that the judge question is again a whole nother podcast because you can talk about uh, whether you know educating judges on what testimony could be acceptable and sometimes when demonstrative testimony is acceptable and I don't know what the case law is on that around around the country but um, but that sometimes you know that that should be admitted in my opinion but um, anyway. So yep. yeah, I think that's a whole nother podcast and then there's a lot, lot, of, lot of training needs to be done there. So I hope you guys um, expand your staff and get out there and uh, start training the judiciary too. <laughs> we, we would love to, and you, you are right. And if any of our listeners knows of uh, judges that have been trained, just you know, let us know, uh, reach out to us. But it is difficult to, to get the bench in training. You, you really going to the judges conferences, I think is, is an avenue in. And it's going to vary by jurisdiction. So in California, they have preliminary hearings. They call them the PX, um, where some of the prosecutors I work with are very good at, at the PX getting those accommodations under ADA, where they the on cross they can only ask certain you know yes no questions or things like that. Getting those accommodations in in the preliminary hearing, but not everybody has preliminary hearings with the judge where you can do that. So it varies. So it's going to be educating the bench per jurisdiction or per state. Um, right. So that, uh, but that is difficult to do. You're you're absolutely right. We need we need more of it, and and I haven't historically been successful at getting in front of judges. But if people have good examples, please let us know. Well, Trish, thanks so much. Thank uh, you. Really appreciate your time. You know you're busy wearing a lot of hats. Durbin, as always, it's awesome having you on. And I'm going to give both of you the final word. We're we're going to sign off this time. Now our producer Maddie's telling us we got to wrap this up. <laughs> But she's still smiling, which is awesome. Yeah, she's just it's just a, she's fantastic. There's just so there's there's so much to talk about in the in this area, and I you know I I am glad that you're doing what you're doing, and I I encourage your listeners to 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 continue uh, researching, looking looking for resources, and 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 um, I'm glad you're providing a lot of those. Dermot. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I would like our audience to know is I learned a lot having that unique privilege of being able to do an investigation and then collaborate so like firsthand and directly with Trish and her staff that it helped me really learn a lot for future investigations and how to prep cases and, and how to think about like the prosecution strategy and the defense strategy. So through the natural flow of the investigation, we could more readily shore things up to the best of our ability, again, based upon the, ca the case facts. But we knew different avenues to explore and doors not to leave open, like just vet it out and have that final answer, be it yay or nay, be able to say, yeah, we looked at that, we asked that question, and this we came up with nothing and say, okay, so it didn't look like we left stones unturned. Um, I think one of my great takeaways that I, I loved about you know, the approach we took when doing cases was this unafraid approach. Like, I'm going to put that false allegation out there. I'm going to talk about their diagnosis. I'm going to call in an expert to explain things. And, you know, it's not just presenting the facts of the case. It's also the education piece for the jury and sometimes the judge, you know, and, and we've had a couple of cases where the judge at the end was like, I, I learned a lot. Like, that was incredible. Like the whole layout of this or the, the series of cases that came before them. So, you know, for I think for prosecutors, don't be afraid of these cases. You know, we brought cases to different jurisdictions 
And I had, you know, an ADA sitting down with me going, oh, okay, so you have all these statements, you have all this evidence, and you have confessions. Where's the other shoe going to drop? I'm like, I, I don't know. There is no other shoe. I'm not seeing another shoe. This is the case. It's solid. Like, this is what we have. You know, we got DNA. We got this. We're getting like, no, no, no. But, and I'm like, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. Like, our victim's solid. Listen to the forensic interviews. Listen to how they talk. Like, look at the evidence. And just don't be afraid of these cases. You know, they're hard. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes you'll prevail. Sometimes you won't. One, one I'll, I'll end with this. We had a really, I'll, I'll call it a heartbreaking case because it was a, it was a trial by judge. The judge did not like this particular um, facility because it housed juveniles that had gotten in trouble with the law. So many of them had, you know, intellectual and developmental disabilities and mental health disorders. In this one case, this uh, young man, he was like 16 or 17, had gotten stomped on by a staff while his head was against a concrete stoop. The staff left the bottom of his Nike Air Force One sneaker imprint on the side of the kid's face. Another staff reported it. it was right there. We had it on camera so we could corroborate things. And anyway, it, it moves. The judge is like, no, throws the case out, like, you know, at, at, at the end of the trial. And we're like scratching our heads. We're like heartbroken. Like, how could you ignore all this evidence? So in the car ride back, my partner and I are driving our victim back home. And he said to us, you know, it's a bummer we lost the case, but I feel okay because you guys actually listened to me. You actually investigated this. You took the time to advocate, like to look out for me. And that's, that means more to me. It's the first time anything like that's ever happened. So thank you. And he was okay. It was like, he got to have his day in court. He got to air it out and whatever the results were, the results were, but he got to speak and he had people believe him and, and advocate on his behalf. And that, that was from a young man, right? A, a juvenile, yeah. treated like a minor, who had that presence of mind to say, wow, look what you guys did for me. You tried. And for that, I'm, I'm greatly appreciative. So just try. Like the criminal justice system has, I think, inadvertently and unintentionally long deprived people with disabilities from access to, just, to justice, starting with an investigation, pro proceeding through with an attempted prosecution. Just try, just try. It'll change. It'll change things in the system of care. It'll maybe make it not so uh, rich a hunting ground for predators when they know that things are going to investigated and things are going to be taken seriously. So um, again, a major takeaway for me in my career at the Justice Center and, and working with people with disabilities. And I'll leave it on that. Thanks, everybody. Um, thanks for listening. And we got ideas for our next uh, bunch of podcasts coming up. Thanks all. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.